Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and printed paired. Materials or items run at Ayers LA of the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Okay, let's start off with a couple of Israel stories here. We have this one from the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, August 31st, 2023. Netanyahu's son ordered to pay. A court rules against the Israeli Prime Minister's adult child in a defamation case. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's son must compensate a woman who sued him after he implied she was having an affair with his father's chief political opponent, a court ruled Wednesday. The court ordered Netanyahu's eldest son, Yair Netanyahu, to pay more than $34,000 in compensation and $6,000 in legal costs to Dana Cassidy. Cassidy sued him for defamation in 2020 after he insinuated on social media that she was romantically involved with Benny Gantz, who was running against his father for prime minister at the time. Over the course of the election, which ultimately returned Benjamin Netanyahu to leadership, Yar Netanyahu posted a series of unsubstantiated statements implying that Gantz was having an extramarital affair, according to the ruling. The insinuation that the young activist had an intimate relationship with the head of the party, a married man who is decades older than her, could humiliate her and make her a target of hatred, contempt, or ridicule, Judge Ronan Peleg wrote in the ruling. Yar Netanyahu first posted a screenshot of Cassidy's Facebook profile on the platform X formerly known as Twitter, writing, Does anyone know who this is? He then reposted an article with a photo of Cassidy and Gantz hugging at a political event for Blue and White, Gantz's centrist political party. At the time, Cassidy was an activist member. The bottom of the picture says, He made me a cup of tea and it turned me on, according to the ruling. In the post, Yar Netanyahu wrote, To each his own cup of tea. Cassidy has told Israeli media in the past that she dealt with a flood of online harassment in the wake of the posts. The son of the Prime Minister ought to exert uh, self-control, Peleg wrote in the ruling, calling Yar Netanyahu evasive and stammering. Yar Netanyahu, who has served as a close informal advisor to his father, is known for posting incendiary messages on social media and has been involved in several defamation cases over the years. Earlier this year, a judge ordered him to pay $18,000 to a former lawmaker in the Israel's opposition Labor Party, whom he called ugly. Benjamin Netanyahu heads Israel's far-right government, which includes a number of lawmakers and ministers with close ties to his son. Israeli media uh, reported earlier this year that the Prime Minister and his wife Sarah have urged Yar Netanyahu to stop posting on social media. That was Netanyahu's son ordered to pay, but from the Associated Press, out of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, August 31st, 2023. And now we move on to this one from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 2nd, 2023, U.S. Evangelical Museum wants mosaic in Israel. Proposal to lend the ancient Christian work to institution riles some academics by Elon Ben Zion. Tell Megiddo, Israel. An ancient Christian mosaic bearing an early reference to Jesus as God is at the center of a controversy that has riled archaeologists. Stood the centuries-old decorated floor, 
which is near what's believed to be the site of the prophesied Battle of Armageddon, be uprooted and lent to a U.S. museum that has been criticized for past acquisition practices? Israeli officials are considering just that. The proposed loan to the Museum of the Bible in Washington also underscores the deepening ties between Israel and evangelical Christians in the U.S. whom Israel has come to count on for political support, tourism dollars, and other benefits. The Megiddo Mosaic is from what is believed to be the world's earliest Christian prayer hall in a Roman-era village in northern Israel. It was discovered by Israeli archaeologists in 2005 during a salvage excavation conducted as part of the planned expansion of an Israeli prison. The prison sits at a historic crossroads, a mile south of Tel Megiddo, on the cusp of the wide, flat Jezreel Valley. The compound is ringed by a white steel fence topped with barbed wire and is used for the detention of Palestinian inmates. Across a field strewn with cow dung and pot sherds, the palm-crowned side of, site of a bronze and Iron Age city and ancient battles is where some Christians believe a conclusive battle between good and evil will transpire at the end of, at the end of days, Armageddon. For some Christians, particularly evangelicals, this will be the backdrop of the long-anticipated climax of the second coming of Christ when divine wrath will obliterate those who oppose God's kingdom. It serves as the focus of their hopes for ultimate justice. The Israel Antiquities Authority said that it would decide on the Mosaic's move in the coming weeks following consultations with an advisory body. There's an entire process that academics and archaeologists are involved with, said Authority Director Eli Escozito. The organization said that moving the mosaic from its original location was the best way to protect it from upcoming construction at the prison. Jeffrey Kloa, the Museum of the Bible's Chief Curator, Curatorial Officer, said a decision on the loan would be made solely by the Israel Antiquities Authority, or IAA. The museum, of course, would welcome the opportunity to educate our thousands of visitors on important pieces of history, such as this mosaic, he told the Associated Press via email. Several archaeologists and academics have objected to removing the Megiddo mosaic from where it was found, and all the more so to exhibit it at the Museum of the Bible. Kavan Konkanon, a religion professor at USC, said the museum acts as a right-wing Christian nationalist Bible machine with links to other institutions that promote white evangelical Christian nationalism, Christian Zionist forms. My worry is that this mosaic will lose its actual historical context and be given an ideological context that continues to help the museum tell its story, he said. Others balk at the thought of moving the mosaic at all before academic study is complete. It is seriously premature to move that mosaic, said Matthew Adams, director of the nonprofit Center for the Mediterranean World, who is involved in digs at Tel, Tel Megiddo and the abutting Roman legionary camp of Legio. Asked about criticisms of the Washington Museum's practices, Cloa said, Major museums and distinguished institutions committed to preserving history have had to grapple with cultural heritage issues, particularly in recent years. To be clear, the Museum of the Bible is proud to have proactively launched research and a thorough review of items in its collection, he added. 
The museum initiated returns where appropriate to countries of origin without obligation to do so and encourages other institutions to do the same. Based on other findings, other finds at the dig and the style of the letters in the inscriptions, IAA archaeologists have dated the mosaic floor to the 3rd century before the Roman Empire officially converted to Christianity and when adherents were still persecuted. Nonetheless, one of the donors who paid to decorate the ancient house of worship was a centurion serving in the adjacent Roman legionary camp. The mosaic bears Greek inscriptions, among them an offering to God Jesus Christ. Since opening its doors in 2017, the Museum of the Bible has faced criticism over its collecting practices and for promoting an evangelical Christian political agenda. In 2018, it had to repatriate an ancient uh, Mesopotamian tablet looted from Iraq and admit that several of the Dead Sea Scrolls fragments in its collection were modern forgeries. U.S. authorities also seized thousands of clay tablets and other looted antiquities found from the museum's founder, Hobby Lobby president, and, uh, and evangelical Christian Steve Green and returned them to Iraq. The Mosaic loan would reinforce ties between Israel and the museum. The museum sponsors two archaeological digs in Israel and is a gallery curated by the IAA. Cloa said the museum also was planning a lecture series featuring IAA archaeologists. Evangelical Christians, whose ranks have been growing worldwide, have become some of Israel's most fervent supporters, donating large sums of money and visiting the country as tourists and pilgrims. In the U.S., they also lobby politicians in support of Israel. Evangelicals, who make up more than one-third of the world's estimated two billion Christians, say their affinity for Israel stems from Christianity's Jewish roots. Some view the founding of Israel as fulfilling a biblical prophet prophecy, ushering an anticipated messianic age when Jesus will return and Jews will either accept Christianity or die. That tenet has generated an unease among some Israelis, but Israeli politicians have embraced evangelical support for the country nonetheless. Since its discovery, the mosaic has remained buried beneath the grounds of the Megiddo prison. But in recent years, the Israeli government has stated, has started advancing a multi-year plan to move the prison from its current location and develop a tourist site around the mosaic. The Tel Megiddo archaeological site is already a major attraction for evangelical Christians visiting the Holy Land. Busloads of pilgrims visit the ruins of a biblical city and pray at the site where they believe the apocalypse will take place. Neither the IAA nor the museum would discuss the exact terms of the loan proposal, but Escozito suggested something similar to the decade-long global tour of a Roman mosaic found in the central Israeli city of Lod until Israel completed a museum, house, a museum to house it. Experts remain skeptical of uprooting the mosaic. Once you take any artifact outside of its archaeological context, it loses something. It loses a sense of the space and the environment in which it was first excavated, said Candida Moss, a theology professor at the University of Birmingham in England who co-wrote a book about the Museum of the Bible. Rath Greenberg, 
Rafi Greenberg, a professor of archaeology at Tel Aviv University, said the proposal smacked of colonialism in which historically dominant powers have extracted archaeological uh, discoveries from colonies. Even if Israel doesn't even recognize itself as being a colony, it's actually behaving like one, which I find odd, he said. Greenberg said that archaeological finding, finds should stay where they are and not be uprooted and taken abroad to a different country and basically appropriated by a foreign power. That was U.S. Evangelical Museum Once Mosaic in Israel by Elon Ben Zion from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 2nd, 2023. Ben Zion writes for the Associated Press. All right, now here is an article from the Our Climate Change Challenge section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 27th, 2023. Now, it's not geared towards us Jews or Israel at all, because climate change affects all of us. This article is basically chosen because of the uh, the person who wrote it. So this is called, How Bad the Climate Crisis Gets is Still Up to Us, We Just Have to Act. For California to successfully fight the crisis, the state politicians, business leaders, and millions of residents will need to work a lot harder by Sammy Roth. As usual, California was ahead of the game. It's been two decades since lawmakers passed the first law to begin requiring electric utilities to replace fossil fuels with renewable energy. Nearly as long since Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger called for one million solar roofs. A decade since the state first mandated large numbers of electric cars on the road. And four years since Berkeley became the first U.S. city to ban gas appliances in new homes. None of those initiatives has protected the Golden State from the ravages of the climate crisis. The eight largest wildfires on record have all burned in the last six years, collectively torching more than four million acres, and none of them was nearly as deadly as the 2018 campfire, which killed 85 people and destroyed the town of Paradise. The three driest years ever recorded came to a dramatic end this past winter, when record rain and snow wreaked deadly havoc flooding farm worker communities and burying mountain towns. The precipitation filled reservoirs but did nothing to change the reality that California faces a frightening water-scarce future as rivers dwindle and groundwater levels drop. The coast has fared relatively better, but sea level rise grows even more urgent. Cliffs are collapsing into the Pacific. Rail lines are experiencing temporary shutdowns and waves are edging closer to toxic sites threatening to poison nearby residents. And there may be more harmful consequences of global warming than extreme heat. Hundreds of Californians already die in heat waves every year, roasting in their homes and baking on asphalt streets with a little shade. The toll will only rise as we continue to burn coal, oil, and fossil gas, spewing heat-trapping carbon dioxide and methane pollution into the atmosphere. Lisa Patel a Stanford University pediatrician saw the dangers firsthand during last year's Labor Day weekend heat wave when temperatures reached 116 degrees outside her hospital in Pleasanton. She worked two 24-hour shifts and she was called to several deliveries when late where laboring mothers had fevers or other complications. She sent multiple newborns to intensive care. In retrospect, I don't know if those moms had a true infection or if they just got overheated, Patel said. 
it's not too late to stop climate change from getting, wor getting worse. But for California to lead the world toward a safer future, the state's politicians, business leaders, and tens of millions of residents will need to work a lot harder and be willing to accept a tomorrow that looks different from today. Los Angeles offers a case study, a telling case study. The city is dominated by freeways built to serve gas-guzzling cars and trucks, and for decades its biggest electricity source has been a coal-fire plant in Utah. Ships and trucks belch toxic fumes into low-income communities of color. Many neighborhoods have precious few trees to protect residents from heat soaked up by the urban hardscape. There are too many grassy lawns, not enough protected bus lanes, and far too many well-to-do white homeowners willing to fight dense housing construction near job centers. Elected officials are trying at least to make things better. LA's first ever chief heat officer, Marta Segura, is working on efforts to plant trees, update building codes to keep residents cool, and create an early warning system for dangerous temperatures and extreme temperature extremes uh, with public outreach in English and Spanish. The port is aiming for a 100% zero-emissions truck fleet by 2035. City leaders have approved rebates for replacing grass with artificial turf or native plants, plus billions of dollars in spending to expand the metro rail system ahead of the 2028 Summer Olympics. And that Utah coal plant? It won't be around much longer. The LA Department of Water and Power has an ambitious plan to fuel the city with 100% climate-friendly energy by 2035, largely by using solar farms, wind turbines, and lithium-ion batteries. This new direction, it's kind of a new world, said Marty Adams, general manager of the Department of Water and Power. We're learning as quickly as we can, but there are a lot of things that are kind of like ground zero. None of it is enough. But at the same time, we've reached a point in history when almost nothing is enough. Earth is, like headed, is likely headed beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, the, the goal urged by scientists and endorsed by nearly every nation at the 2015 Paris Climate Summit. Keeping average global temperature increases below that target would nearly would require slashing carbon pollution by nearly by, in half by 2030. Not impossible, but nowhere close to current economic and political trends. The 1.2 degrees of warming we've already felt have brought plenty of pain and suffering, especially from Black, Latino, and Native American communities and nations in the Global South. Every additional tenth of a degree of warming will bring even more pain and suffering, and every tenth of a degree we avoid will mean better lives for billions of people. So what more can California do to get its own house in order and possibly bring other states and countries along for the ride? Well, one thing... California can prove it's possible to phase out fossil fuels without badly disrupting daily life. Hundreds of thousands of households and businesses got a taste of the difficulties in summer 2020, when state officials were forced to implement brief rolling blackouts during a brutal heat wave. There simply wasn't enough power to supply tens of millions of air conditioners after sundown when temperatures remained high but solar panels stopped producing electricity. Residents barely avoided more outages the next two summers, and only then because they heeded pleas to use less power. All we want to we all want to accelerate the eliminations of the gas, Governor Gavin Newsom said during a September 2022 heat storm. But the fact that gas-fired power plants still provide much of the state's on-demand power 
as a sober reminder of reality. Newsom has made the climate and clean and energy top priorities, like knowing any future presidential campaign could flourish or fail on his performance. Like many leaders in Washington, D.C., the governor has urged permitting reform to make it easier <clears throat> to build the massive number of renewable energy facilities the state will need to ditch fossil fuels. It has also led a push to keep California's Diablo Canyon nuclear plant open past 2025 so it can keep generating emissions-free electricity. There are many actions regular Californians can take to push the state forward too. Installing rooftop solar panels, replacing gas furnaces with electric heat pumps and gasoline cars with electric models and hardening their homes against wildfire. Golden State residents can also think more broadly about how their lifestyles line up with climate imperatives. Do you have an opportunity to take public transit to work or to work from home? Would you support devoting more space on your neighborhood's streets to buses and bikes, even if it slows down your car-based commute? Do you really want to move from a city to a rural or suburban area surrounded by forests where there's a decent chance flames will come for your home? Of course, living more sub uh, sustainably would be easier with support from politicians and business executives, cheaper housing within cities, better bus and rail options, corporate policies that don't require employees to drive to, to faraway offices. There's no more important issue for the world, said Mike Fuhr, former LA's, formerly L.A. city attorney, during an unsuccessful campaign from mayor last year. If we were to look forward to a conversation that our kids or grandkids might have in 20 or 30 years, they're going to look back on us and say, what the heck were you thinking? No matter how hard California's 40 million residents might work to reduce their own emissions, there's nothing more effective they can do to fight climate change than to put pressure on elected officials to take more sweeping action. That action to begin with aggressive measures to confront the fossil fuel industry, many activists say. Under a bill pending in the legislature this year, California's two big public employee pension funds, the nation's largest, would be required to divest billions of dollars from oil and gas companies. Other proposals would require major corporations of all kinds to publicly report their heat-trapping emissions as well as the risks that climate change poses through their operations. But at least thus far, the deep-pocket fossil fuel industry has largely been able to stave off transformative change. Pump jacks continue to suck oil and gas from the ground in and around Los Angeles, Kern County, and elsewhere, polluting the air and contributing to asthma, preterm births, and reduced lung function. Lawmakers voted last year to ban new drilling within 3,200 feet of homes. But the ban would do nothing to address existing wells, and it may never take effect. It's paused through at least November 2024, after oil and gas producers secured enough signatures to send it to the ballot for voters to decide. Fossil fuel executives have known for decades that drilling in neighborhoods puts our communities at risk, said Nicole Rivera, government affairs director at the Climate Center, a Santa Rosa-based nonprofit after the bill was defeated. Instead of acting to protect public health and our shared climate, they've lobbied to spend millions of dollars convincing elected officials to look the other way. The political sparring over gas furnaces, water heaters, and stoves has been equally intense. Berkeley's 2019 ban on gas hookups in new homes and businesses spurred a nationwide trend. 
with dozens of cities across the U.S., including Los Angeles, following its lead. The fossil fuel industry pushed back hard, led by the nation's largest gas utility, Southern California Gas Company. A recent court ruling called into question the legality of some of the bans. Will Californians be willing to give up cooking with gas? Will they support cutting down on fossil fuel production, even if doing so means higher prices at the pump? Can they learn to embrace a future of more densely populated, less car-centric cities? And equally important, will they vote for politicians determined to stand up to one of the world's most powerful industries? Because at the end of the day, the main barriers to climate change are more political than anything. Studies have shown we we have most of the technologies we need to stop burning fossil fuels. The costs of clean energy have fallen dramatically. We, have no, we know how to redesign our cities and reshape our patterns of development to get carbon pollution mostly under control. The climate crisis is here to stay. How bad it gets is up to us. That's how bad the climate crisis gets is still up to us. We just have to act by Sammy Roth from the uh, cl- our Climate Change Challenge section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, August 27, 2023. All right, now we turn to the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 27th, 2023. A loss that he'll never get over by Bill Plaschke. Five years ago, the foul ball still screams. Its journey still silences and impact in eternal. Every night before going to bed, Erwin Goldblum walks to the office of his quiet Camarillo home and taps up a YouTube video on his computer. It is the sound of Nat King Cole singing Fascination. It was their song. She was beautiful, he says. Five years ago, Linda Goldblum accompanied her husband of 59 years to Dodger Stadium for a Saturday night game against the San Diego Padres. She had the best seat. She had the perfect view. Lodge level third row on the right side of home plate. Irwin on the side uh, on the aisle next door. The batter's directly in front of her. She wore blue. She cheered loudly. She stood and sang at the seventh inning stretch. She sat back down and focused on the field as a one-run duel crept into the start of the ninth inning. Then a foul ball hit her in the face and killed her. Five years later, Irwin 90 serenades his late wife's spirit with a nightly love song while pondering a web of endless cruelty. After 53,528 people at Dodger Stadium that night, why did the ball find her? How could a game that gave her so much life so directly cause her death? And why was the protective netting so low? The pain was compounded when the daughters initially didn't acknowledge her death, and there was no public recognition of it until Irwin's daughter, Yana Brody, contacted ESPN nearly six months later. Fact, even though it was it was the only it was only the second death by a foul ball in Major League history, there's a good chance many are just hearing about it now. Five years later, her widowed husband lives with it daily. Life isn't fair, Irwin says, choking back tears. I wish I had been in her seat. It was the final night of their 10-game season ticket allotment. It was potentially the final inning of that final game. They were so close to going home. In typical Los Angeles fashion, many of the spectators already headed for the parking lot, but not the Goldblums. We never left a game before it ended, Irwin said. We're true fans. 
They were indeed diehards, with parcel season tickets for more than 20 years and a Dodgers history that dated to their courtship days in the Coliseum. He attended World Series games, playoff games, and even Sandy Koufax's perfect game. They unconditionally loved the Dodgers and built a life draped in blue. My mom would love uh, packing a lunch and going to the games, Yana recalled. It was a fun, easy time to be with Dad. Linda worked for CBS Radio and later in clothing stores. Irwin coached wrestling and taught health and physicalation at Pierce College while also becoming a renowned wrestling referee. They have built a strong family life together in West Hills with three children and seven grandchildren. After they both retired, Dodgers games were their entertainment, their date nights, their popcorn-scented bond. The Saturday night of August 25th, 2018 was one such occasion. They used the last of their tickets for the game against the Padres. They were accompanied by Irwin's brother and sister-in-law, Michael and Eve Goldblum. Irwin and Linda, 79, sat in the third row. Michael and Eve sat directly behind them. When the game reached the ninth inning, the Dodgers led 3-2 with Kenley Jensen on the mound. It was typical Jensen hold-your-breath time. The idle conversation between the couple ceased. We know baseball. We were focused on watching the game. We weren't turning around and chatting, Eve recalls. I saw exactly what happened, and I remember it like it was yesterday. The inning started with six foot five, two hundred eighty-five pound Fran Mill Reyes, a hulking giant who had homered in his previous plate appearance. Jensen started him out with a ball, then a called strike, then another ball. Then Reyes swung from his heels and caught the edge of the pitch and sent the ball blistering back over the netting behind home plate. There was no time to react. There was no time to move. In an instant, the ball was smashing against Linda's right cheek. She immediately slumped in her seat. Sitting directly behind her, Eve immediately knew something was terribly wrong. That ball came back like a bolt of lightning, a white bolt of lightning, she remembers. I've, I've sat in nearly every seat in that stadium, and I've never seen a ball coming back to the stands with that kind of speed. The ball hit Linda so hard, it ricocheted off her face to the to the row above her, bouncing off Michael's chest, then clattered up several rows. Linda never stood a chance, Eve remembers. I'm like, oh my God, it hit her in the head. Erwin quickly stood and leaned over to her. Are you okay, he asked. I am not okay, she said. After a lifetime together, it was their last conversation. By the time medical personnel arrived, Linda couldn't walk, so two emergency medical ed technicians carried her up the aisle and into an ambulance and rushed her to what is now Los Angeles General Medical Center. Irwin rode in the front seat. He didn't hear her vomiting. He didn't see the medics insert a breathing tube. He initially couldn't recognize the dire nature of her condition. Foul balls aren't really killers, are they? I thought she was going to go in, get checked out, sign a few papers, and we were going home, he recalls. She never made it home. She underwent emergency brain surgery and never regained consciousness. She died four days later. The Los Angeles County Coroner's report listed the cause of death as acute intracranial hemorrhage due to history of blunt force trauma. It cited the foul ball as the reason for the injury. The family sent an email to relatives and friends announcing her death while noting that the end came suddenly by a foul ball at Dodger Stadium. Death by foul ball. 
the coroner's report was clear. The family didn't try to hide it, but nobody seemed to want to acknowledge it. The Dodgers did not reveal the death for nearly six months, later telling the New York Times, the Dodgers generally do not make reports of accidents that take place at Dodger Stadium. We avoid doing so out of respect for the privacy of the persons involved and their families. The, the media had no idea what was happening and did not mention the incident in game reports, noting, that, noting only that after the Padres' Austin Hedges tied the score with a home run in the ninth, the Dodgers eventually won 5-4 in the 12th. End of story. If reporters had known of the eventual death, it would have been big headlines, not only out of respect for Linda's life, and not only because it was only the second time in Major League Baseball history that a fan died after being struck by a foul ball, but also because the first death also was at Dodger Stadium. Alan Fish, 14, in 1970, after he uh, died in 1970 after he was hit by a foul ball off the bat of Manny Mota. People needed to know what happened to Linda and the dangers of sitting in the stands, yet it was ignored, and I couldn't understand it, Irwin says. Why didn't the Dodgers just say a woman died at a game last night? Isn't that something they should do? Five years later, the anger remains. I was pissed off because it was like the Dodgers were saying, we're above this, we don't want people to know because they won't come to the game, he says. To them, it was just another incident. Nearly six months later, equally upset by the lack of public understanding and certain that the tragedy could have been prevented with more protective netting, Grody made her mother's death public through ESPN's William Weinbaum. Every time I told her story to people, their mouths would fall open, and they would ask if the Dodgers did anything, she recalls. They didn't. That had to change. When confronted with a death, besides the statement to the New York Times, the Dodgers also told ESPN, Mr. and Mrs. Goldblum were great Dodgers fans who regularly attended games. We were deeply saddened by this tragic accident and the passing of Mrs. Goldblum. The matter has been resolved between the Dodgers and the Goldblum family. We cannot comment further on this matter. When contacted for this five-year anniversary story, the Dodgers again declined further comment. The family could successfully sue the Dodgers because of baseball's, the baseball rule, a legal term that holds the, that teams are not responsible for injuries that occur from a foul ball. He eventually settled with the team for a confidential amount, then Brody went on a publicity blitz aimed at forcing all teams to expand and heighten the protective netting. At the time of the accident, it was the first season that all 30 teams had installed netting from uh, behind the home plate to the far end of the dugouts. But it wasn't enough to save Linda's life, so Yana and Irwin kept pushing through media interviews until teams began increasing the height and length of the netting. Finally, a year after Linda's death, the Dodgers added eight feet to the netting behind home plate and above both dugouts, enough to have saved Linda's life. They also extended the netting beyond the dugouts and to the elbow bend in front of the field-level seats. Since then, every team has extended the netting and all minor league teams are required to install netting by the start of the 2025 season. Brody, whose book Sit Behind the Nets chronicles her family's tragedy and the ensuing quest, only wishes change had not come so slowly. I'm just mad that it's taken so long to get the word out, she says. And now they're saying minor league baseball has until 2025? That's three years worth of injuries. Still, five years later, it is Irwin's only solace. 
Every time I see a foul ball hit into a net, I think I just saved somebody's life, he says. He still watches baseball, only he does it alone from his couch. He surrendered his season tickets and will never again set foot in Dodger Stadium, hauntingly located only 10 miles from where his wife is buried. I can't go back there. Too hard. Too many memories, he says. But he doesn't blame the players. He still cheers for the Dodgers on television, and he knows Linda would be cheering with him. She'd go to bed early, and I'd stay up and watch the end of the games, but I knew she was always there, he says. She was always a Dodgers fan. Five years later, Irwin's summer evenings no longer end with Joe Davis or Earl Hershiser, but with Nat King Cole, memories of his late wife forever more powerful than any foul ball. We loved that song, he says. That was a loss that he'll never get over by Bill Plaschke from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 27th, 2023. Right, we now move on to an article from the LA Affairs section. This is from the, this is a, a called Must Love Good Food, Cooking is My Joy, But He Wasn't Able to Appreciate It by Lorraine Stern, Sunday, August 27, 2023. I have two passions in life, babies and cooking. As a pediatrician, I got to indulge one of them during my working hours, and with a remodeled about-the-up kitchen designed perfectly for me, I could indulge the other at home. I was married for 30 years to a man who loved to eat and loved to support me in my culinary education. In the early days, a number of meals went down the disposal, but eventually I became such a great cook that friends were reluctant to invite us to their homes to eat. Jack and I had at least two dinner parties a week, some planned and elaborate, others impromptu and casual, but all usually memorable. I tried every kind of cuisine. I even did a dinner from the French Laundry Cookbook. Without sous chefs, the citrus powder alone, which is a garnish for a dish with a skate wing, took me a whole afternoon. We also tried out most of the new chic restaurants in LA, as well as in Paris and other European cities. I became a foodie. My beloved Jack died in April 2004. I lost interest in cooking for myself and was too sad to cook for others. Fortunately, I have a generous circle of friends who invited me to their homes and out for dinner repeatedly. About a year later, Nancy and Brent, dear friends from London, asked me if they could stay with me for a couple of weeks while they set up to look for work in L.A. They turned out to be the most delightful, interesting, loving, and easy house guests one could have. I loved having them, and they ended up staying for six months. I'm the sort of host who asks and guests if they have any allergies or if there is any, anything they hate when they come to eat at my home for the first time. I prefer guests whose answer to the allergy question was, the only thing we don't eat is jellyfish. However, Cooking it wasn't cooking it wasn't simple, and but with Nancy and Brent, especially after I found out they could not eat wheat or dairy, got violently ill with mushrooms and soy, avoided foods that might contribute to her yeast problem, and had a variety of other real or imagined sensitivities. When I found out about the wheat problem, for example, I proudly told them I have I've spelt bread from the kitchen from the fridge. I can't eat spelt, Brent announced sheepishly. Although they were both bright and well-traveled people, Nancy had a tendency to believe what was told to her by anyone who talked convincingly. 
She shunned microwave cooking, for example, because the microwaves make the molecules rotate in the opposite direction. They often had dinner ready when I got home from work, which was wonderful. They used rice pasta, which I have to say is virtually tasteless and has a weird texture. But they mostly made soups. The next chapter of my life began while they were staying with me. I had been a resident physician at UCLA in the 60s. I had a relationship with an extraordinarily tender and loving man while I was there. He was going through a divorce at the time and ultimately had to move out of state. I often thought of him over the years. Jack and I visited him once in a, in a, once in a while when we were in, went to Seattle. No, Jack did not know we had that sort of relationship. Out of the blue one day, over a year after Jack died, Neil called. I told him that Jack had died and he was genuinely saddened. They had liked each other and got along well. One thing led to another and we realized that each of us had kept the other in our thoughts. Emails became more and more romantic and finally, we got together. Not only is he a vegetarian, a mild but not daunting challenge for a devoted cook, but he is also diabetic. He eats nothing white. No fish is no fish as allergic to cucumbers, shuns mushrooms because they are fungi, dislikes eggplant, a pillar of vegetarian cooking, as well as artichokes, and most important, most disappointing of all, he has virtually no palate. His favorite foods are mainly overpowdered, overpowered with garlic. He hates Chinese food and anything resembling a stir-fry and my go-to go for last-minute cooking. He also was just not into food. I once talked with someone about a lemon risotto that I make, which is vegetarian, and he asked me if I could leave out the rice which I made when I made it for him. Sometimes I just stood in the middle of the kitchen and sighed. Restaurants became my mainstay when it was when it was my turn to cook. Being a longtime foodie, I included Neil when I went out with friends when he was in LA. Going to stylish restaurants and paying high prices for great food never fazed me. But paying those prices for a vegetable plate that he couldn't appreciate anyway, even if it was gorgeous and subtly flavored, did rankle. I finally postponed those elegant eateries for the time when Neil went home. When Neil cooked, he threw in anything he could, you could think of. Pancakes had yeast, baking soda and baking powder, whole wheat flour, flaxseed, oatmeal, soy milk, mashed bananas, vanilla, and a few other things uh, besides eggs and oil. You would think all the leavening would make it light, but the weight of the other ingredient, ingredients created four-pound pancakes. One day, he asked if I'd like him to uh, make his special spinach eggs for breakfast. I looked forward to highly scrambled eggs with some baby spinach that, he, that had been slightly sautéed. Wrong. Spinach was only a small part of a concoction that had so many ingredients, including garlic, you couldn't find the eggs. It looked and tasted like a rolled-up newspaper left out in the rain. My guest moved out to an apartment in Hollywood after six months so Brent could pursue his acting career. My relationship with Neil ended at about the same time. It was not because of food issues, but I must admit it was a relief to be able to cook the way I always have. As soon as I returned to L.A. after our breakup and my guests were incensed in their own apartment, I cooked ribs, paella, and mushroom salad and served great breads and sugar-loaded desserts, including my favorite haagen everything I had been avoiding. 
Food and feeding people is such an important part of my life that I think I will start any future relationship with a gastronomic questionnaire before giving my heart. That was Must Love Good Food by Lorraine Stern from the LA Affairs section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, August 27, 2023. The author is a clinical professor emeritus in the Department of Pediatrics at UCLA, practicing for 47 years in the Santa Clarita Valley. She retired four years ago and misses the children who were under her care every day. LA Affairs chronicles the search for romantic love in all its glorious passions in the LA area. We want to hear your true story. We pay $400 for a published essay. Email laaffairs at latimes.com. You can find past columns at latimes.com slash laaffairs. Okay, it turning now to some entertainment news. We start off with this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 27th, 2023. A huge laughing matter. It turns out Anchorman is kind of a big deal as NYU's Saul Austerlitz argues in a new book by Chris Wagner. Saul Austerlitz teaches a course at New York University on writing about American comedy. He's certainly qualified, having written a very good book, Another Fine Mess, on the subject. But the movie he regularly chooses as an introduction to the course takes some students aback. To many of them, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, 2004, is, as Osterlip puts it in a Zoom interview with the Times, this dumb movie about a buffoonish San Diego news anchor Will Ferrell and his emotionally stunted cohorts slathered in a thick sauce of mocking 70s nostalgia. How could a Will Ferrell movie be a subject of serious study? Then, Osterlitz starts unpacking it with his students. They talk about how the movie critiques the sexism of its me-decade setting. They explore the anarchic discipline of improvisation that feeds nearly every scene. They consider how Farrell's Burgundy, a male chauvinist pig who falls in love with his station's first female news anchor, Christina Applegate, has stepped off the screen like Jeff Daniels in The Purple Rose of Cairo and into everything from a North Dakota newscast to an ESPN interview with NFL star Peyton Manning. It turns out that there's a lot going on in this deceptively smart dumb movie, enough to fill a book. Austerlitz's kind of a big deal is a wickedly sharp, discursive study of a movie that has cast a long shadow on 21st century comedy, particularly a group of seemingly perpetual post-adolescents, including Anchorman co-writer Farrell, co-writer-director Adam McKay, and producer Judd Apatow, collectively known as the Frat Pack. The book is also an elegy of sorts for a time, not long ago, when blockbuster comedies could make a dent in an industry increasingly dominated, Barbenheimer notwithstanding, by superhero and fantasy IP. I got to the point of a teacher, teach thyself moment, says Austerlitz, who has also written books about friends and the wild card of the bunch, the disastrous 1969 Rolling Stones concert in, uh, at Altamont Speedway. I'm trying to push the students to write about Anchorman, to think about Anchorman, and I realized there's a lot to be said about Anchorman. And that was the moment when, where I started thinking about writing this book and tackling this era of comedy. The main players here are Farrell and, and McKay, who are among the many subjects Arcelis interviewed for the book. They met on Saturday Night Live in the 90s. Farrell was a rising star and McKay was head writer. They shared a background to improv and a passion for jolting placid setups with manic absurdity. 
as Austerlitz details, they initially planned to make a movie called August Blowout, set in the world of car sales, or as Anchorman would be, a hothouse world of masculine competition and aggression. They couldn't sell it. One night, they were both watching an A&E biography episode about Jessica Savage, a pioneering anchor in the hyper-macho TV news field. They were struck by an interview with a male anchor who recalled that the world's rampant sexism without a trace of repentance. The light bulb went off. They were off and running on a project that initially included the cannibalistic aftermath of a plane crash, which might have given new meaning to the bit where Ron picks a piece of lunchtime rib from his teeth. Farrell and McKay have had a falling out in recent years, partly over how McKay handled the decision not to cast his long-term creative partner in the HBO series Winning Time. Austerlix digs into the first time director McKay's extensive use of alts or, as, or alternative takes informed by, his, by rapid fire on-the-spot suggestions. As he writes, the actors of Anchorman have mostly been forged in the white heat of sketch and improv, where performers regularly topped, completed, or added to the work of others, and that spirit carried over to the set of this feature film. The improv veterans included McKay, Farrell, Steve Carell, who plays dim weatherman Brick Tamlin, and David Koechner, whose blustery sportscaster Champ Kind does his best to hide a powerful crush on Ron. Applegate, who logged 10 seasons on Married with Children, and comedy veteran Paul Rudd, who plays mustachioed cologne-splashing reporter Brian Fantana, were quick studies. The book details how Anchorman and its feral-starring predecessor, Old School, helped usher in a series of comedies loosely structured around blinkered male protagonists facing crises of adulthood and masculinity. They include not only a stack of feral vehicles, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, and Anchorman 2, all directed by McKay and co-written by him and Farrell, but also The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up, both directed by Apatow, as well as sympathetic pictures like Wedding Crashers, Starsky and Hutch, and I Love You, Man. As Austerlitz writes, these movies were about the reluctant fading of the eternal sunset of adolescence and the buried emotions of men who just missed their friends. It's an interesting era, Austerlitz said, in part because the movies all feel like they're speaking to each other and telling variations of the same story. But clearly there are flaws in those films. I think Anchorman is to some extent the exception in having an actually fully formed female character. Oftentimes the female characters in these movies are very secondary and not fully fleshed out. If you watched these pictures when they came out, you probably didn't think you were in the midst of a renaissance in movie comedy, but it increasingly looks that way in retrospect. Never terribly fond of risk, the industry in recent years has leaned even harder into cookie-cutter, action-heavy IP. That also means banking even more on international sales, which puts comedy, so often linguistically and culturally specific, at a disadvantage. Water cooler comedy is far more common on television these days than at the theater. To Austerlitz, this is no laughing matter. Comedy has essentially died as a genre, he says. This feels a little bit like a lost era, where comedies could still be blockbusters, where comedy stars were megastars, and where many of these films were legitimately excellent movies and really funny comedies. It all feels, it already feels like a bygone era, even though it wasn't all that long ago. 
as Ron might say, Great Odin's Raven. He helped start a movement. Of course he was probably too clueless to realize it at the time. That was A Huge Laughing Matter by Chris Wagner from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, August 27, 2023. Wagner is a freelance writer based in Houston. Right now we go on to a movie review. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, August 28, 2023. Fierce Bottoms set female rage loose in high school. Emma Seligman's queer teen comedy savagely satirizes a familiar setting by Katie Walsh. Meet Bottoms. She's the wild, brutish, and unrepentantly horny zoomer, horny doomer zoomer child of the classic Gen X teen movie Heathers, the nasty niece of the Y2K era black comedies Jawbreaker and Drop Dead Gorgeous. She's the naughty little sis of Mean Girls and the bratty cousin of Superbad, the BFF of But I'm a Cheerleader. It's been a long time since a movie has been this delightfully, unapologetically, and hilariously vicious and satirizing the heteropatriarchy of high school homogeny. While Bottoms, the sophomore collaboration between director Emma Zeligman and star Rachel Senat, who wrote the film together, has an un indisputable lineage, its creators aren't interested in paying blind tribute. Rather, they co-opt the narrative tropes, aesthetics, and iconography of the genre in order to uh, parody the idea of these movies that, and, to, and to queer the space, piercing a rich vein of untapped female rage that ultimately ends up splattered all over the screen. In their debut effort, Shiva Baby, Seligman utilizes a jittery handheld camera to take us inside the anxiety-ridden subjectivity of a chaotic bisexual synod stuck at the family function coping the gritty indie style of a John Casavetes or Sabdi Brothers movie or a queer female perspective. In Bottoms, she and cinematographer Maria Rusch, R-U-S-C-H-E, employ the saturated color palette and long, gliding tracking shots that give classic teen movies their slick sheen. But at the center of it all are not a pair of impossibly shiny babes, but rather two rumpled lesbians sporting an astounding array of baggy rugby shirts. Bottoms is no touching coming out story for either PJ, Sinat, and Josie, A.O. Edebury. By the time we catch up with the lifelong friends, they are out, and maybe not proud, but at least solid in their sexuality. These two losers want what any high school loser wants, to get some play. They moon over the ethereal Isabel, Havana Rose Lou, and the literal supermodel, supermodel Brittany, Kaya Gerber, daughter and clone of Cindy Crawford, was struggling to get out from the bottom of the social dogpile at their football-obsessed high school. As the entitled whiny Jeff, the superstar quarterback and crown prince of their school, Nicholas Galtazine swings in the opposite direction of his characters in red, white, and royal blue, tearing into this toxic limbo role. The boyfriend of cheerleader Isabel Jeff stands in the way of Josie's crush, and after a light ve vehicular assault, rumors of PJ and Josie's violent past spiral out of control. There's only one solution to the lie. Start a fight club. 
The concept of a fight club itself pokes fun at David Fincher's hyper-masculine 1999 film, but the club serves the same function for the girls as it did the guys back then, allowing them to unleash their primal bloodlust. Their capacity for violence doesn't stem from a desire to dominate, but to defend themselves. Bottoms is both disturbingly and refreshingly frank in how it addresses the casual, normalized violence to which young women and girls are injured. The characters mention their assaults, their stalkers, their rapes, including gray area stuff, in jokes likely to make men squirm. Their desire to fight comes from the comically out-of-control misogyny and oppression they experience in school. When the fight club dissolves into infighting and drama, the, it's due to the external misogynistic forces that would rather these girls don't amass their own organized power. Bottoms is an unruly movie about unruly women. Like the characters at the center of the story, it is chaotic and messy and imperfect, but it takes a big, wild swing in grappling with the dark reality of existing as a female-bodied person in a world that either objectifies rejects or demonizes women who don't fit a specific mold. Sinod and Edbury delivered two of the funniest performances of the year, while Seligman savagely satirizes the teen movie genre that has reflected and shaped our cultural understanding of young women. If its imperfect or certain narrative turns our rocky, you forgive it because Bottoms is just so audacious, and most important, the jokes are nonstop. Perfectionism is a trap anyway. That was Fierce Bottoms Set Female Rage Loose in High School by Katie Walsh from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, August 28, 2023. It's called Bottoms, Rated R for Crude Sexual Content, Pervasive Language, and Some Violence, Running Hour 1 Hour 32 Minutes, Playing in General Release, and Katie Walsh is a Tribune News Service film critic. Now we've got this story from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency website, jta.org, and this is called 10 Jewish Amy Winehouse Moments and Photos from a New Book on Her Life by Myra Zailali, September 1st, 2023. Amy Winehouse, the Jewish singer and songwriter whose soulful tunes about her dark personal life became influential pop hits would have turned 40 this year. Her debut album, Frank, also turns 20 next month. To mark the moment and to raise money for the Amy Winehouse Foundation, Winehouse's family collected never-before-seen photographs, handwritten lyrics, and excerpts from her diaries from childhood to adulthood and wrote Amy Winehouse in her words, a biography of sorts to accompany them. On its website, the foundation lists recovery housing for women, music therapy, and substance abuse education among its services. Some have argued that Winehouse's family, especially her father Mitch and her husband, Blake Fielder Civil, enabled her issues with drug and al drugs and alcohol. Winehouse first overdosed in 2007, and her father continued encouraging her to travel and perform, even filming documentary footage of an overdose recovery in St. Lucia in 2009. The pop star died in 2011, and in Amy, a well-received documentary about her life from 2015, Funeral girls can be seen wearing kippahs. But controversy aside, the Winehouse clan has faithfully chronicled Amy's childhood and young adult years when she attended a Jewish kindergarten, went to a bat mitzvah, and went to bat mitzvah and enjoyed singing Jewish spiritual music in her free time. 
although she was never observant as an adult and said she hated going to Hebrew school on Sundays, Amy enjoyed Jewish holiday gatherings. She was also spotted wearing a Star of David necklace at times. In 2013, the Jewish Museum in London devoted an exhibit to her. Here are 10 Jewish moments from the book, which was published this week. She attended a Jewish nursery school. From the book, she went to nursery school at Yavna School, which was attached to London's Southgate Synagogue. She was never hard to spot, singing at the top of her lungs. She sat in the synagogue's front row at her brother's bar mitzvah. Jewish music was a core part of her musical journey. In addition to jazz, Jewish music was a big influence on Amy in her early years. She especially loved the Hanukkah song, Ma'ot Sewer. From the book, music also seeped effortlessly into Amy's consciousness, and she could recite lyrics and sing tunes after hearing a song maybe just once or twice. At her nan Cynthia's house, she was surrounded by jazz music, anyone from Frank Sinatra to Ella Fitzgerald to Sarah Vaughan. And at home, she performed songs from the musical Mary Poppins or Jewish hymns that we taught her. She repeated one hymn, Ma Oates Sura, over and over until she got it right. Okay, Amy, enough was a familiar expression in our house as she sang continuously at the top of her voice. She once sang Jewish spiritual music on a Miami beach. In 1997, Amy traveled to Miami with her mother, Janice, for a family bar mitzvah. From the book. Privately, however, Amy was honing her writing talent. Her notebooks from this time showed the reflections of a typical teenage girl trying to find her way in the world, going to parties and having crushes on boys. In 1997, for a break, Janice took her to visit her family near Miami, where they attended a bar mitzvah on the beach. Amy sat scribbling into her notebook and singing Jewish spiritual songs with her cousins. She, later br- she sent her brother a letter with Hanukkah stamps. The letter read, Dear Allie, Miami great, we're, we're great bar mitzvah, great Cochran's great. You great, weather good today, beach and shopping. Miss you, love Amy, X plus mommy X. P.S. I can play the guitar, well five chords, to Mr. A. Winehouse, London, England. From the book, she learned five chords on the guitar and she couldn't wait to tell her brother Alex. As much as Amy was failing at school, her musical and lyrical talent was developing. She had American Jewish relatives in Florida. The caption for this photo from the book, Amy with Janice and her American family in Florida at her twin cousin's bar mitzvah. Amy spent much of that holiday either practicing guitar chords from Alanis Morissette songs or jotting down her own compositions. She connected her with her producer, Mark Ronson, over the shared Anglo-Jewish identity. Ronson would go on to work with other superstars, superstar artists such as Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars. From the book, producer Mark Ronson also seemed to give her the creative freedom she needed. A Jewish boy originally from North London, Amy felt an affinity with him and responded to his quietly spoken manner, which allowed her to flourish. She didn't feel that Jewish identities were represented enough in theater or music. She subsequently didn't think she could be a part of those worlds. From a quote in the book, When I was a little kid, it was my dream to go to drama school, but it was never something I thought would happen to me. I was a Jewish girl from North London, and things like that don't happen to Jewish girls from North London, called Amy Winehouse. She hoped that girls would see their most difficult experiences represented in her music. From a quote in the book, 
I'm not a girl's girl. I was never part of a scene where I was the leader of a bunch of Jewish girls that sang jazz. I don't know anyone like myself. I know that if I'm honest about myself and honest about my time and what I do with my life, I know that there are girls that will hear, hear that and be like, I thought that. I'm not a dickhead. I've been through times I've been so fucked up about a situation that I've had to write everything down and feelings I've had to acknowledge. Someone else might hear that and feel I'm not a mug for feeling those things about this man. Even during her grunge rock phase, her mom made her dress like a normie for this family bar mitzvah. From the book, Amy went through a teenage grunge phase, but whenever she got dressed up, she always looked lovely. And that was... 10 Jewish Amy Winehouse moments and photos from a new book on her life by Myra Zailali from JTA.org, September 1st, 2023. All right, now here is something from a site called YouDiscoverMusic.com. And uh, this is called September Mom, Neil Diamond's Beloved Ballad. The song wasn't a huge hit upon its release in 1979 but it's become one of the pop icon's most enduring tracks. By Brett Milano, September 1st, 2023. If you were Neil Diamond in 1979, every day was a September morn, a day full of undying love and grand romantic gestures. September morn marks an era where Diamond was the king of pop romance. Yes, he was still recording upbeat tracks and occasionally releasing them as singles but the dramatic ballads had become his real calling card. The song wasn't a huge hit at the time of its release, only reaching 17 when he regularly hit the top 10. But it's since become one of his most enduring tracks. Some things are clearly built to last. Neil Diamond in the 1970s, September Morn also put the, ca uh, the capper on Diamond's most restless and arguably most interesting decade. Indeed, his 70s began with the release of Taproot Manuscript, an album that took the unheard-of step of fussing his brand of pop, uh, fusing his brand of pop music, uh, his brand of pop with traditional African music, a good 15 years before Paul Simon got a similar idea. At the time, Diamond was very much part of the singer-songwriter movement, though he still had a bit of rock and, rock and roll rebel in him. Check the eye-grabbing cover of 1972's live album, Hot August Night, or play its scorching version of Cherry Cherry, if you don't believe me. The next round of changes began when he switched labels from MCA to Columbia. He'd now be aiming for a more grown-up audience, phasing the rock elements out of his sound, and occasionally making a creative leap, like his first album for the label, a symphonic soundtrack based on the pop philosophy not phenomenon, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. The first Columbia hit, Longfellow's Serenade, served as a bridge between his thoughtful acoustic style and the lusher ballads to come. There was, however, a major side, side trip before he committed to balladry. In 1976, Diamond shocked everyone by hooking up with one of his most unlikely fans, Robbie Robertson of The Band, who produced the autobiographical concept album, Beautiful Noise. Diamond went on to appear with the band on The Last Waltz and didn't change his style a bit. This earned him plenty of derision from the hipsters, but Diamond had The Last Left via the Robertson-produced hit single Don't Think, Feel, one of his uh, sprightlier and more delightful tunes. 
It was another producer, however, who helped Diamond really fit, find his direction in the mid-70s. This was Bob Gaudio, who knew a few things about making hit records, having written and produced dozens of them for his former group, The Four Seasons. Gaudio came aboard for 1977's I'm Glad You're Here With Me Tonight, where the balladeer Neil came forward in earnest. The first single, Desiree, was a throwback to his early upbeat style, but another song on the album would prove more significant. You Don't Bring Me Flowers was a ballad so emotive that Barbara Streisand immediately covered it, and numerous radio stations created their own mashups by splicing the two versions together. These proved such a sensation that the, th the two did then, rec uh, then recorded a proper duet version and hit it big, becoming Diamond's first number one since Song Sung Blue in 1972. September Morn was the third in a streak of ballad hits following Flowers and Forever in Blue Jeans. Most of these records were made by the same core crew with Gaudio producing and Diamond's regular road band playing backup. September Morn also introduced another important collaborator, the French singer-actor Gilbert Bacow. Like Diamond, Bacow was known for giving energetic performances. Bacow was known to his fans as Monsieur 100,000 Volts. He was also 13 years Diamond's senior and hailed from a different era of pop. He had written for Marlena Diedrich and composed the 1961 pop standard, What Now My Love? His collaboration with Diamond was short-lived but productive, beginning with September Morn and yielding five songs for Diamond's version of The Jazz Singer. For September Morn, Diamond put a new lyric to Bacow's tune, taking off from the musical music's autonomous feel. The contrast between the two songs is telling. Bacow's tune, Say in September, is not about a relationship, but a general reflection on the changes that the month brings. The translated lyrics read, The olive trees lower their arms, the grapes get red noses, and the sand has become cold in the white sun. Serious bathers and seasonal workers return to their real jobs, and the manager, the manger figurines will be sculpted before Christmas. It's, a po it's poetic for sure, but not quite the stuff that U.S. chart smashes are made of. Compare that to Diamond's lyric, which addresses the performance of love in terms that are haunting, universal, and just a bit tragic. A singer's ex-love appears before him, whether in the flesh or in a dream is never made clear, and prompts a reverie about uh, what they had together and what's left. Two lovers playing scenes from some romantic play, September morning still can make me feel that way. There's also a subtle reference to a previous diamond hit when he tells her, Look at what you've done. Why, well, you've become a grown-up girl. Of course, he once told another girl that she'd be a woman soon. Everyone who bought the September Morn single got a surprise. The flip side was a rework of the Diamond Pin Monkeys classic, I'm a Believer, complete with steel drums, a light samba rhythm, and a few new lyrics. That wasn't the only left field track on the September Morn album, which also had covers of Martha and the Vandellas Dancing in the Street and Lloyd Price's Stagger Lee, both among the few full-fledged disco tracks Diamond ever cut. His version of The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, the Guadio song originally done for a, by a solo Frankie Valley, was more faithful, save for its prominent use of the Who's Baba O'Reilly guitar lick. September Morn, 
claimed a permanent place in his fans' hearts and in his own heart as well. When asked to perform on short notice in 1985 at the White House for a dinner honoring Prince Charles and Princess Diana, September Morn was one of his two songs. Diamond also included the song when he came out of retirement to perform a benefit show in his honor at the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Las Vegas in March 2020. It was one of only seven songs that he performed that night. Diamond, of course, had many more hits, going strong with a ballad streak until 1982's E.T.-inspired Heartlight. Gerber Bacow remained a beloved performer in France until his death in 2021, and Bob Gaudio made history by bringing the Four Seasons to Broadway with the Jersey Boys. After the massive success of that project, he returned in 2021 with the only possible follow-up, the Neil Diamond musical, A Beautiful Noise. And that was September Mom, Neil Diamond's beloved ballad by Brett Milano from youdiscovermusic.com for September 1st, 2023. Okay, and now on to some articles from the LA Jewish Home, August 9th through the 23rd, 2023, Volume 1, Number 22, your favorite bi-weekly family read. And this is from the Torah Thoughts section, Parshas Re'eh by Rabbi Adir Pazi. Throughout the Torah, we see our relationship with Hashem described in various different ways. Two of the most common are the fact that we see ourselves as servants, Avadim. Indeed, we call ourselves Avadi Hashem. At the same time, we are described in this week's Parsha as children of Hashem, as the Pasuk tells us. These two relationships have two very different characteristics. The relationship of servitude is one where we have rules to follow and detailed tasks to perform, whereas the notion of a parent-child relationship conjures up images of unbridled kindness and boundless love. Throughout our religious lives, we are exposed to both sides of this relationship. Anyone who was ever cleaned up for a Pesach or checked the tippy-top of a lulav knows, knows how there are there knows how there are avadim service aspects to our Judaism, and that is a good thing since it grounds us and gives us a mission and godly purpose. Yet we all feel at the same time through those the same life events the affection of Abina Sheba Shamayim, Hashem, our Father. It is, however, curious to note that as soon as the Pasuk describes this dichotomy and expresses that we are the children of Hashem, a somewhat unusual mitzvah follows. We are told, Lo Tisgodedu, a command that Hazel interprets to mean that we are forbidden to separate ourselves into different cliques, uh, each one shunning the other's manner of serving God. How are these two values connected? Upon further reflection, it would appear that there is a simple yet profound thread that pulls all of these ideas together. When we are told this in the Parsha, there is a subtle message beneath the surface. If we are all children of God, then we are all related to each other. It is therefore a natural lead into the commandment to be unified as a people because we have one common root that binds all of the limbs to this proverbial tree that connects us to one another and to Hashem. From a superficial standpoint, this interpretation goes against some of our most basic instincts. It is so natural to bifurcate one's life to separate out all of the rules and regulations 
the things that make us servants of God from the things that make us the easygoing relationship that we that we often have as as children. And all too often, this bifurcation, the split of the practical religion away from the spiritual religion, ends up leaving us taking meaning out of our actions and not acting on the things that are meaningful. Parshas Re'e offers us the model to solve this paradox, the commandment to be unified. For it is a simple truth that if we focus on what makes us the same instead of what makes us different, we can have the opportunity to learn from each other and maybe even see a broader perspective. Put differently, connection to community has not only social value, but it can also enhance our religious experience. It allows us to give each other, and more importantly, learn from each other, from one another. So yes, we are servants of Hashem, and that service implies a nuanced and detail-oriented religious life. And yes, we are children of Hashem, and we bask in the love and kindness that is part of the parental relationship. And indeed, sometimes our practical lives push us into factions of different men hagim, different opinions, and different perspectives. How do we reconcile these two extremes? We connect with and support one another, and we build a sense of unity that is greater than anything that can divide us. But that is what it truly means to be Hashem's children. As we rise from the ashes of the three weeks, let us resolve to build upon that unity and reach our potential. That was Parshas Re'e by Rabbi Adir Pasi from the Torah Thought section. Rabbi Adir Pasi is the Associate Rabbi at Beth Jacob Congregation in Beverly Hills, the Director of the OU West Coast, and the National Director of the OU Department of Synagogue Initiatives. Rabbi Pasi works across the gamut of the Beth Jacob membership while directing OU programming in Los Angeles and serving as a consultant for shuls across North America. He lives in Pico Robinson with his wife, Dr. Hindi Posse, and their nine sons. Here's something from the Shalom Bayit section through the Parsha, Pleasure of Nonsense by Rabbi Nir Jacobi. God forewarns us in that don't pass your children through fire. Two questions come to mind. First, who in his right mind would tolerate having his kids maimed or killed? Second, since this was a religious practice, one that supposedly elevates the spirit, who in his right mind would derive pleasure from such practice? My uncle immigrated from Shiraz to Tel Aviv when he was in his 30s. I asked him now, a quarter sixty years later, what was your first reaction? I felt I was in a house of prostitution, he answered. Why did you stay? I further inquired. I got used to it, he offered. Nowadays, he actually loves Tel Aviv. It is unfortunately possible to get numb to behavior that is detrimental to Shalom Bayet, or worse, ascribe pleasure to that behavior. How does it all start? With veering to the left or to the right off the path of Torah. Stay to the path of Torah for your Shalom Bayet. That's Pleasure of Nonsense by Rabbi Nir Jacobi from Shalom Bayet through the Parsha. Rabbi Nir and his wife Atrian give regular classes on Shalom Bayet. This popular three-minute podcast is funny and draws Shalom Bayat ideas from the Torah portion of the week. To register, shalominkomics at gmail.com. Now here's something from the Deeper Torah Thoughts section. Psycho-Spiritual Insights Exploring Parasha and Psychology, Parasha Shaftrim, Shaftim, Favorable Judgment, 
by Ilan Javanfard. In Parshat Shaftim, we learn about the establishment of a just society through the appointment of judges and officers. While the Torah discusses the importance of impartial judgment in legal matters, it also subtly emphasizes the value of judging ourselves and others favorably on a psychological and interpersonal level. It is fitting that my bar mitzvah parsha, parasha which always falls around my birthday of Rosh Chodesh Elul, deals with judgment. No wonder I became a therapist. The Pasuk says, Sedek, Sedek, Tirda, Deuteronomy 16.20. Justice, justice, you shall pursue. This encourages us to seek true justice. Ibn Ezra writes on this Pasuk that the word Sedek, justice, is repeated to emphasize justice should be pursued whether one would gain or lose from it. This double language can further include not only judging others fairly, but also ourselves. Meaning that we should make every effort to po uh, possible, every effort possible to judge favorably, even if it pains us. Psychological research shows that favorable judgment leads to positive outcomes in the long run. When we cultivate self-compassion, it enhances our overall well-being, and when we give others the benefit of the doubt, we strengthen relationships and create a supportive environment. As summarized by author Wayne Dyer, judging others doesn't define who they are; it defines who you are. Choose to see the good in yourself and others. Rav Israel Salanter, the Jewish ethicist, highlighted the significance of this concept in his teachings. He stressed the importance of judging others favorably, even when their actions might appear negative, when we don't truly know what is happening in the hearts and minds of others. The Baal Shem Tov elaborates on the Pasuk in Tehillim that states, Hashem is your shadow, Psalm 121.5, that just as our shadows move with us, our relationship with Hashem follows our movements in life. How we view others mirrors how Hashem views us. This understanding fits perfectly with the Gemara in Shabbat 127b, that one who judges another favorably is himself judged favorably by Hashem. The same principle applies when we evaluate ourselves. Often we are our own, we are we are we are our harshest critics holding ourselves to unattainable standards and dwelling on our mistakes. We often judge others based on the actions and ourselves based on our intentions. One might notice an intentive parent at the park and exclaim what a great parent they must be. And while putting their own children to bed, they judge themselves harshly for feeling tired through the process. Comparing what others do to what you feel is not a fair judgment. Irvine Yalom, an existential psychiatrist well-known for perfecting group therapy, writes, In therapy, we learn to replace judgment with curiosity for both ourselves and others. It is a path towards self-acceptance and deeper connections. Based on the commentaries and clinical research, there are three suggestions for judging favorably. 1. Cultivate empathy. Try to put yourself in the shoes of others to understand their perspective and motivations better. This can help you judge more compassionately. Perkei Avot, Ethics of the Father 2.4 writes, Do not judge your fellow man until you have reached his place. On this, the Bartinura writes, If you see someone fail, do not judge him unfavorably until you have time and time again succeeded in the same place. 2. Avoid assumptions. Don't jump to conclusions about someone's actions or intentions. Give them the benefit of the doubt until you have enough information. Perkei Avot, Ethics of the Father 1.6, writes, 
ha'adam lechav zehut. Judge every person as meritorious. Masterfully understanding human psychology, the Sforno writes without the ability to give others the benefit of the doubt. How could a friendship ever endure? 3. Focus on strengths. When evaluating yourself and others, focus on positive qualities and accomplishments rather than dwelling on shortcomings. This can lead to a more favorable and constructive perspective. Rav Yitzhak Berkowitz explains that the idea of judging favorably does not mean that we should irrationally judge every act as positive. Rather, it is telling us to be logical, reasonable, and fair, taking into consideration the strengths of the individual as well. Be just in our judgment by considering the full picture. Parshat Shavtim teaches us that the pursuit of justice extends beyond the legal realm. It calls us to approach each other and ourselves with compassion and understanding. May we strive to these lessons from the Torah by cultivating empathy, avoiding assumptions, and focusing on the positive. As we enter the month of Elul with a focus on reflection and repentance, hopefully we will be able to internalize these messages and gain favorable judgments from Hashem. By adopting these lessons, we contribute to a more compassionate and connected community, creating a world where justice and kindness can coexist harmoniously. That was Psycho-Spiritual Insights, Exploring Parashah and Psychology, Parashat Shaftim, Favorable Judgment, by Elan Javanfard, from the Deep Torah, Report, Deep Torah Thoughts section. Elena Javanfard, M-A-L-M-F-T, is a consulting psychotherapist focused on behavioral health redesign, a professor of psychology at Pepperdine University, and a lecturer related to mindfulness, evidence-based practices, and suicide prevention. Elan is the author of Psycho-Spiritual Insights, Exploring Parasha and Psychology, a weekly blog. He lives in Los, Los Angeles, Pico Robertson community with his wife and two children and can be reached at elanjavanfard at gmail.com. And now from the Jewish Kids section, this is the Rebbe Stories story section, Rebbe, Please Drink the Water by Rabbi Mordecai Dubin. The great Tana Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva lived at a time when the Roman emperor made a decree that it was forbidden for a Jewish person to learn and teach Torah. Rabbi Akiva, however, did not let this warning stop him. A Jew cannot live without the Torah and mitzvot, he proclaimed to all his students. Eventually, his hideout was discovered and Rabbi Akiva was captured by the Romans and thrown into jail. Fortunately, his student Rabbi Yehoshua Hagarsi was permitted to bring him bread to eat and water to drink, and for washing Natila's Yedayim. One day, there was a new guard stationed outside the jail. He stopped Rabbi Yehoshua Hagarzi to examine what he brought. Why are you bringing so much water? He questioned accusingly. This is more water than the prisoner needs to drink. Rabbi Yehoshua explained to him that as Rabbi needed water to wash his hands as well as water for drinking. I don't believe you, said the guard. I'm sure that the additional water is being used to soften the ground so that the prisoner could try to escape. With that, the guard spilled out half the water onto the ground. When Rabbi Akiva saw that there was so little water that day, he asked surprisingly, You know that I am very weak and I am relying on you to bring me what I need every day. Why did you bring so little water today? Rabbi Yehoshua Hagarsi explained to his rabbi how the new, rabbi, how the new guard spilled out half the water. 
Rabbi Akiva asked Rabbi Yehoshua to please pass over the remaining water so that he could wash Natila's Yedayim before eating his bread. But Rabbi, you will not have enough water to drink if you wash your hands. Please drink the water. You need it for your health. Rabbi Akiva listened to his Talmud. He made a braha on the water and drank, but refused to eat the bread. Why are you eating the bread? Rebbe, your body is so weak. Please eat. How can I eat bread without washing the tilas yadayim? Answered Rabbi Akiva. Our hahamayin taught us that we must wash Natilas yadayim before we eat bread. Although Rabbi Akiva was very weak, he refused to eat the bread until additional water was brought for him to wash his hands. When the Jewish people heard about the story, they were amazed at how careful Rabbi Akiva was about doing mitzvahs. Rabbi Akiva was old, he was weak, and he was in jail, and yet he was still so careful to follow everything that the Torah and the Hamachim said we needed to do. Most of us are young, healthy, and free to do mitzvahs. We should learn all we should all learn a lesson from Rabbi Akiva to do all our mitzvahs in the best way possible. The story is taken from Mesenches Eruven 21b. Discussions for quest questions for discussion. One, do you think that Rabbi Akiva was afraid that he would get caught learning and teaching Torah? Two, if he was afraid, why did he keep learning and teaching Torah? Three, why did a Rabbi Akiva's student want him to use the little drinking the little water for drinking and not for washing his hands. Four, could you give three lessons why Rabbi Akiva might have been permitted to eat his, the bread without washing his hands? Five, what lesson could we learn from this story? That was Rebbe, please drink the water from the Rebbe story section of the LA Jewish Kids section. Rabbi Mordecai Dubin is a Rebbe at Jindi Maimonides Academy. He is the author of three illustrated children's books, I'll Never Forget Yerushalayim, I Believe, and I Know Six, and has produced for four musical CDs for children. I Made This World for You, Let My People Go, Al Shalosha Devarim, and Hashem is Always With Me. Here's something from the Stories to Inspire section. Connect, connected to the source, based on a story told over by Rabbi Pesach Krone by Daniel Agalar. In the picturesque town of Gateshed, a revered Rebbe and his devoted Talmud embarked on a leisurely walk. The path they traversed was adorned with countless trees, their branches adorned with a vibrant display of autumn leaves. As they strolled along, a solitary leaf gracefully descended from its arboreal perch, catching the Rebbe's discerning eye. Stooping down, he picked up the delicate leaf and turned to his eager Talmud, ready to impart with a profound lesson. With the leaf held gently in his hand, the Rebbe began to explain its transient nature. You see, my dear Talmud, he began, this leaf is unaware that its time on this tree is limited. In just a matter of days, it will wither and fade away, detached from its life-sustaining source. The tree is like the Torah, providing nourishment and sustenance to those who are connected to it. He continued quoting the powerful verse from Proverbs, the Torah is the tree of life for those who hold on to it. The Rebbe wanted his Talmud to understand that just as the leaf depends on the tree for its existence, human beings rely on the Torah for spiritual nourishment and sustenance. The Rebbe went on to share an important insight that resonated deeply with his Talmud. He cautioned, In your journey, 
through life, my dear Talmud, you will encounter individuals who may boost, boast about their freedom to live without adhering to the Torah's principles. They fail to realize that their choices will have consequences for future generations. Without a connection to the Torah, they, their children, and their grandchildren will drift further away from their spiritual roots. Moved by the profoundness of the Rebbe's message, the Talmud cherished and internalized the lesson imparted to him that day. Little did he know that this seemingly simple encounter with a falling leaf would shape his perspective for years to come. That young Talmud, whose heart was touched by the Rebbe's wisdom, would grow up to become the renowned Harav Matasyahu Solomon, a beacon of Torah wisdom and inspiration for countless individuals. Reflecting on his Rebbe's teachings, Rav Matisyahu Solomon often recalls the leaf incident as a guiding principle in his life. The Rebbe's words served as a constant reminder of the importance of embracing the Torah, not just as an intellectual pursuit, but as a deep, meaningful connection to one's spiritual essence. He realized that by nurturing this connection, not only would he be personally enriched, but the impact would transcend generations, ensuring that his children and grandchildren would also be firmly rooted in the internal wisdom of the Torah. Rav Matasyahu Solomon has since dedicated his life to imparting this invaluable lesson to his students and disciples, reminding them of the significance of remaining connected to the Torah's teachings. His own journey, inspired by a simple leaf and guided by his Rebbe's wisdom, continues to inspire countless individuals to cultivate a profound and unbreakable bond with the living tree of Torah, nurturing their souls and leaving an indelible mark for generations to come that was connected to the source based on a story told over by Rabbi Pesach Kron by Daniel Aguilar on the Stories to Inspire section. Daniel Aguilar is the founder of Stories to Inspire, an organization dedicated to sharing curated inspirational stories from renowned Rabin, Rabinim. With a widely popular podcast that has surpassed 4 million downloads, Daniel's passion for spreading positively, positivity shines through. Join their daily WhatsApp broadcast by messaging 310-210-1205 or explore over 4,250 stories on their website at www.storiestoinspire.org. The stories can also be accessed on their hotline at 718-400-7145. Right, and now on to the Jewish Journal for August 18th to the 24th, 2023 and the Table for Five Weekly Parsha One Verse Five Voices section Edited by Sabata Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist. Shoftim, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this Torah and these statutes to perform them. Deuteronomy 17.19 Miriam Mill Kreisman, President Sadiq Foundation a king that is bound to follow God's Torah cannot be swayed by the political or social whims of his generation. We had riots in the streets of Israel mainly because of this lack of a balance of powers. We can't stomach it anymore. Who is the boss? In a democracy, we want the people to choose its government, and we want a judiciary that upholds its country's laws. When the judiciary feels empowered to create or negate the government's laws, or when the government overpowers the, judi the judiciary, where is the balance? This can only be created when a document or a constitution or a written in stone set of rules limits the power of the government and the judiciary. In the United States, the constitution is that, or tries to be, such a document.
Now imagine a country, or even a better world, where the word of God, the Torah, is that document. After all, who else knows how the world should be should best be governed? Being obligated to have a Torah scroll with him at all times and to learn it from all the days of his life, Israel's king will always be aware of who in re is really in control. It will hopefully keep in check any ruler's unlimited power. The more we learn from the Torah, the more we will be ready to live in a world ruled by God and his righteous Moshiach. And what a different world that will be. Rabbi Haim Turef, Rav Beit Sefer Pressman, and author of Recovery of the Torah. The rabbis understand that the king needs to carry the Torah with him so that he will always remember God is with him and act accordingly. Since the king had almost unfettered power, including the ability to execute someone, his ego needed to be kept in check. The king was chosen by God for this job. Hence, he was imbued with his power, and it was due to this, not some inherent greatness, that he was the king. As people in addiction recovery know, there is often an extreme feeling about oneself that colors how one feels. I'm the most unworthy person if anyone really knew who I was, or I deserve this, and if I hadn't been wrong, I'd be in a better position. This is called the terminally unique syndrome. The ego or lack of it creates almost a bipolar understanding of oneself. The commandment of the king can teach everyone that God is always with us. The commandment to carry a Torah scroll should remind us that we are who we are for a reason. This symbol of carrying God's law with us is to remind us of our inherent worth and in turn the worth of others. If we can keep this balance, it will allow us to see our unique task. So remember, we are never as bad as we think we are and we also are not the greatest human ever created. We, like everyone else, are work in progress. Rabbi Cheryl Peretz, Associate Dean, Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies at AJU. This it, this version reference, references isn't just any it. It's the Torah, and the and commandment to Torah is not surprising. After all, Talmud Torah has been a hallmark of Jewish life. Each morning and evening, we recite the Shema as a reminder that no matter where we are or go, the words of Torah should always be on our lips. And while and while the beginning of this passage renders the appointment of a Jewish monarchy optional. This version is clear that any such monarch is obligated to have God's teachings, Torah, on a scroll. The 19th century Lithuanian rabbi, Netziv Naftali Zevi Yehuda Berlin, teaches that while contemplating Torah may well be a requirement for any Jew, it is even more so for the one chosen for a position of power, influence, and leadership. As such, the verse unfolds as a mindful progression to the one who commands others, put Torah in front and center, read it every single day, study it so that it leads you to leads to your own divine awe and ultimately influences and acts and work of your governance. This, Netzev says, leads to putting God at the center and serves as a reminder that the monarch is called to the same service as anyone else, a service that changes who we are, and what we do. The period of Jewish monarchy is ended, but the divine to call hold the, the divine call to hold Torah at the center to study it that we experience awe and change our behavior remains a beacon of light and vitality. Rabbi Abraham Lieberman, Judaic Studies, Shalhevet 
HS. Josephus, 37 C to 100 CE, in trying to explain to us non-Jewish readers the legislation of Torah law, said the following, Our legislature ordained our government to be what, by a strained expression, may be termed a theocracy by ascribing the authority and the power to God. Contra Appion 2.17 When we consider words like democracy and monarchy and compare them to the world, the, uh, to the word theocracy, we can begin to see the nuances of power, rule, corruption, abuse of power, and human responsibility. The Jewish king was required to retain the Torah with him at all times, as Maimonides explains. The Torah was stringent regarding the removal of his heart, for his heart is the heart of the entire congregation of the Jewish people. For this reason, the Torah instructs that he must cling to the Torah more than the rest of the, the, rest of the nation as the verse states, all the days of his life, Hilhat Melachim 2.36. The guidance provided through this instruction, if adhered to, would ensure an ethical rule where abuses of power cannot arise. The king's responsibility through this constant reminder and with such understanding would reassure that justice for all will be carried out equally and not even the king can be exempt. The limitations of power inherent in this kind of system are self-evident. This should be a lesson for us all in our own, be our own dealings in life to keep the Torah as a moral ethical anchor for gr to ground us in proper behavior. Aliza Lipkin, writer and educator, Malay uh, Adumim, Israel. The Torah states regarding the Jewish nation, I will set a king over myself like all nations around me. These words indicate that it is due to the word, through the will of the people, that they appoint a king. God, in turn, commands the king to abide by a set of laws. God commands the king to write uh, for himself two copies of the Torah. He is to keep one copy with him and read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God, to keep all the words of this Torah and these statutes to perform them. The Hebrew word in the Bible for fear is Yira. Yira can also mean he will see. It is exceedingly difficult for a king in all his power not to become a pompous autocrat. The commandment for him to constantly review the Torah is to keep him grounded. It is a continual reminder that although he sits on an unearthly throne, Hashem is the king of the universe. When the earthly king makes it his daily practice to review God's word via the Torah, he will come to see God in everything and act accordingly. This enlightened perspective will ensure the king faithfully keeps God's commandment, commands and publicly sanctifies his name. This will yield a kingdom worthy of his name, one in which each individual can gain a glimpse he will see of a kingdom on earth that is truly divine. And that was Table for Five Weekly Partial One Verse Five Voices section, edited by Salvador Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist, and it was Shaptim, and he will, and he shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this Torah and these statutes to perform them. Deuteronomy 17, 19. All right, now here's something from the Community Health section. What you should know about spinal muscular atrophy by David Suisa. When we think about genetic diseases, the ones that usually come to mind are cystic fibrosis, fragile X, and, of course, Tay-Sachs disease. 
One disease that many people are not aware of is spinal muscular atrophy known as SMA. But SMA is more common than you would imagine. One in 40 to one in 60 people are carriers for the disease and affects one in 6,000 to 10,000 babies. In fact, the disease is so prevalent that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the professional association of OBGYN physicians in the U.S., recommends carrier sc uh, screening of SMA for all women who are planning on being pregnant. As August is mus uh, Spinal Muscular Atrophy Awareness Month, we talked to S.C. Rose, a genetic counselor with J-Screen, a nonprofit genetic testing initiative out of Emory University about this debilitating, usually fatal condition. Question, what is SMA? Answer, spinal muscular atrophy is a genetic disease in which there is a lack of communication between the nerves and the muscles so that the nerves are not telling the muscles how to work properly. Most typically, you'll see issues in the lungs so those with SMA will have trouble breathing as the nerves aren't telling the lungs to breathe. There's also weakened cough, scoliosis, a progressive loss of motor facilities, and trouble eating and speaking. Basically, the muscles all over the body are not doing their job, so individuals with SMA are very sick and getting progressively worse. Question, how fatal is it? Answer, the median age of death is 10 and a half months without treatment. Those with a less severe form of SMA can live a little longer with vent, vent, ventil ventilatory support, airway clearance, nutri nutritional support, physical therapy, and adaptive equipment and, and gastrotomy Mr. Tommy Toombs. Question, do they perform newborn screenings for SMA? Answer, newborn screening for the disease is available in 47 states, which can detect about 95% of the cases of babies born with SMA. Question, are there treatments? Answer, there are some new treatments that have been effective in managing SMA. The most common is a gene therapy FDA approved in 2019. As individuals with SMA are missing a gene that is vital in the production of a protein involved in nerve and muscle control, working copies of this gene are given intravenously via viral vector. With the working gene now introduced into the body, the necessary protein is produced typically allowing the child to breathe and eat on their own and possibly sit and stand and maybe even walk. While this gene therapy is effective, Rose cautions, it's not a cure. These kids still have SMA, but at least they're creating some of this protein in their bodies that can help with some of these symptoms. For those not using gene therapy, there are two other medications that can help slow down the progression of the disease. FDA approved in 2016, Sprenraza is a lumbar puncture treatment administered four times in the first 60 days, followed by one every four months. Another, Evrisdi, FDA approved in 2020, is an oral treatment taken daily. Question, with available treatments, does SMA seem to be not as serious a problem? Answer, again, it is important to remember that these treatments do not cure SMA and the child is in for a difficult road ahead. Rose reiterates, while you're greatly improving the quality of life, these kids still have SMA and they're still dealing with a chronic illness. These treatments are also expensive. The gene therapy is $2.125 million for the one dose, although most cases are covered by insurance. We don't know the long-term prognosis, yet with these treatments, as they are so new and only babies born in the last few years have had the benefit of the therapies. 
All of this, Rose emphasizes, makes carrier screening before pregnancy absolutely crucial. Parents are very lucky that they have these treatments available, but I think it's crucial for people to get tested before pregnancy so that treatment is not their only option. Before pregnancy, they have other options like prenatal diagnosis. They might have used assisted reproductive technologies like IVF. They might decide to use an egg or sperm donor. They might decide to adopt. They just have so many more options if they do the screening early. Question. Do direct-to-consumer tests like 23andMe screen for SMA? Answer. Actually, they don't. Rose explains that these services use a form of testing called genotyping, which does not look at the entire gene and therefore would not detect these kinds of mutations that cause SMA. So when having carrier screening, be sure that your screening panel includes SMA. Having a genetic counselor help you through this process is also vital to help you make decisions on your family planning. And the earlier you have carrier screening, the more options you'll have to welcome a healthy baby. That was What You Should Know About Spinal Muscular Atrophy by David Suisa from the Community Health Section. For more information about genetic diseases and where you can get carrier screening, visit genetestnow.com. All right, and from the community section, this is called An Israeli Diplomat Reflects on How She Kept Communities Connected During a Global Pandemic by Revital Danker. Looking back on it, I still can't believe that I helped transform COVID-19 social distancing into an advantage by connecting a local Israeli consulate with the world's two largest Jewish populations in the United States and Israel. I have served for 30 years in the Israeli foreign ministry, 15 years of them managing teams worldwide, but I was not prepared for the greatest historic consular challenge of all, managing the consular department team at the Consulate General of Israel in Los Angeles during the COVID-19 crisis, while Israel was grappling with the severe impact of the pandemic and exercising some of the strictest regulations in the Western world. For a period of nearly two years, entry into Israel was restricted, denied, for foreign nationals. In addition, for weeks, thousands of Israelis were stranded abroad and unable to return, leaving some of them undocumented in a foreign country. Although the restrictions were later partially lifted for the Israeli resident citizens, foreign nationals were still prohibited from entering Israel without special permits issued by the Israeli authorities, often through the Consulate General. During my term at the consulate, the consular department found itself dealing not only with providing routine consular services and the increased demand for Israeli passports, but also thousands of requests every month from American citizens who are married to Israelis, parents of uh, Israeli children without Israeli passports, Americans with relatives in Israel, and individuals requiring entry for work, studies, medical needs, and more. This extraordinary situation significantly burdened the Israeli consular services worldwide. In practice, the Israeli government transferred the processing of exceptional visa requ requests of foreign citizens from Jerusalem to the embassies and consulates. This represented a significant increase in workload without additional manpower or special resources. As a consul and representative of the State of Israel, I found myself caught in a dilemma torn between the decisions of the Israeli government and the fear that the pandemic would indeed escalate. On the other hand, 
thousands of individuals were separated from their families with heart-wrenching stories that necessitated issuance of, of special entry permits. The realization that the only thing standing between them and their journey to Israel was me completely changed in my completely changed my professional perspective. It was time for bold decisions. In September 2020, I decided to reopen in a controlled manner the front-facing consular surfaces at the Los Angeles Consulate. We became the only consulate with an open facility. However, managing this crisis was challenging. With one representative answering endless phone calls and another reviewing emails, which amounted to hundreds of requests per day, the actual window services to individuals were limited to 30 or 40 inquiries daily. What about the rest? At this point, I had to think creatively and outside of the box. It may sound trivial to some, but we asked ourselves, how do people communicate today in this era? It doesn't have to be by phone. There are online applications. One such application is WhatsApp Business, which is entirely free. Within a few days, we opened a new dedicated WhatsApp account, prepared written responses, and posted the links on our website. This step alone enabled us to effectively handle dozens of inquiries per hour with a single representative. We even connected two or more representatives to the WhatsApp account to work remotely from home, thus allowing for faster and more effective responses and outreach. We used WhatsApp to send links, forms, and at a certain stage, even entry permits to Israel. Travelers who received approval at the airport gates were able to save their trips, avoiding significant emotional distressing and financial damage. This service was so successful that we received inquiries not only from all over the United States, but also from many European countries. Wherever possible, we always provided assistance. It became our motto. How does one deal with 400 emails per day? Once again, we sat down and thought, finding another entirely free solution. Google Forms. All we needed was a Google account. So we opened one for the consulate, created an entry permit application form, and directed all Israeli citizens who wished to travel to fill out the form. These simple te technical solutions, along with the creation of a detailed, informative, and user-friendly website, proved to be a winning method. However, beyond technical solutions, there are aspects that are measured by the consul's personality or the team's willingness to make an extra effort. After all, we are a governmental body, not a private entity. I was forced to make another decision, and again, it ran contrary to the notion of social distancing. In November 2020, I decided to fly to three neighboring states, Arizona, Colorado, and Nevada, within the consulate's jurisdiction to assist remote communities with the same general consular needs. Armed with consular stamps and accompanied by security guards, I embarked on concentrated meetings to assist families with children who, for example, needed personal identification. Our operational methods, creativity, and willingness to help also set an example for other consulates and embassies. We found ourselves supporting and teaching other consulates and diplomatic missions. Moreover, the added value of opening new communication channels and the fact that thousands of American citizens turned to us for assistance paved the way for new relationships between the Consulate General in Los Angeles and the U.S., the second largest Jewish community in the world. The last three years have taught me that during a historical global crisis accompanied by daily uncertainties, 
the importance of providing human-to-human -human services cannot be overstated. In crisis management, there is no substitute for human capital, and there is no substitute for the personal connection that I, as a diplomat and consul, create with individuals. However, in the modern world we live in, there is also no escape from creative technical solutions, even at their simplest level. As I look back on how I maneuvered through the past three historic years, I am grateful to the uncanny power of technology, but I am even more in awe of the human heart and its capability to transcend logic, bureaucracy, and yes, a global pandemic. That was an Israeli diplomat reflects on how she kept communities connected during a global pandemic by Revital Danker from the community section. Revital Danker is a senior Israeli diplomat and local consul in charge of consular affairs at the Consulate General of Israel. She will soon include three challenging but meaningful years of service on behalf of the State of Israel. All right, here's something from the community section. Launching a modest high fashion clothing marketplace by Kylie Aura Lobel. When Lisa Sakay was in college and working at Bloomingdale's, she decided to start dressing modestly. However, she quickly became fed up with shopping for clothing. I was working on an experiential, experiential retail marketing team at Bloomingdale's conceiving new ways to capture customers, she said. Yet in my own modest shopping experience, I noticed no one was doing much to try and capture me. When Sake was shopping, she had to constantly sacrifice quality, style, or budget. She spent hours searching for clothes that met her modest standards only to receive a dress with a surprise slit and an open back. The modest clothing space and consumers' perspectives on it, it wasn't much better. Having grown up in an Iranian Jewish household, the stereotypes around modest dress greatly impacted my view on clothing, and as I started to change the way I dressed, I noticed how many other women felt that a modest dress code was outdated, ugly, frumpy, and restrictive, Sarke, who lives in New York, said. Sarke wanted to disrupt the fashion industry by bringing modesty up to trendy standards and giving women more options. That's why this summer she started The Reflective, a modern fashion retailer, modest fashion retailer. The online shop features more than a thousand of the latest mo <coughs> modest fa fashion items. Sources from prominent brands, boutiques, and designers like Sachin and Babi and Baruni. Women can shop for everything from dresses to tops, sweaters, skirts, and accessories like belts, jewelry, shoes, and bags. We launched the Reflective in order to change the way women feel about modesty by empowering them to see fashion as an external expression of individual values, she said. Our mission is to provide an elevated and attainable product curation while empowering our community through engaging and educational content, events, and evolving experiences for the modern, modest woman. The site is for women of all backgrounds, but Sake says her main customers are observant Jewish, Christian, and Muslim. We're honored to serve such a diverse community and begin to show women worldwide that we are not all that different, she said. We also serve a large population of modest by choice individuals, these are women who choose to dress modestly for many reasons, including professionalism, safety, aging, and even sun exposure. Sake hopes to help women feel good about the modest clothing they're wearing. Even though she's had, she had a hard time adjusting to dressing modestly at first, today she feels empowered. Initially, dressing modestly felt unnatural and uncomfortable, she said. 
I immediately noticed that when I swapped out my skinny jeans for a midi skirt, I became quieter and lacked my usual confidence. She continued. I needless to say, five years later, I'm still here. My modest wardrobe allows me to express myself through my interests, my relationships, my spirituality, and of course, my clothes. Although it is still an immense challenge and commitment, I no longer feel shy. Rather, I feel a sense of elegance, femininity, and humility. With the reflective, Sake's goal is to make the modest clothing shopping experience easier and provide women with a wardrobe that helps them feel better inside and out. We clearly value beauty and aesthetics, she said. We ultimately believe that your externality is just a vehicle for expressing your internal self. That was launching a modest high fashion clothing marketplace by Kylie Ora Lobel from the community section. And folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.